Father, as we turn our attention now to Your Holy Word, God, we have sung phrases and passages straight out of this sacred text to You this morning. God, we pray that in the same way that these songs, the singing of Your Word has already pierced our hearts, we pray that the preaching, the proclamation of Your Word would also pierce our hearts. God, I know that as I stand here, Father, I am both unworthy and unable. I know that I am foolish, Father, and I know that there is no way for Your Word to go forth without Your Spirit moving in spite of me. So, Father, as humbly as I know how, Lord, I ask that You would do that. That Your Spirit would pierce our very hearts with Your Word. Lord, that my words would be cast aside and only Your words would be remembered. God, in in this day, in this time, in all that we're facing, would You please offer us strength and comfort and encouragement. But God, even though all this is going on around the world, Lord, that doesn't change the fact that we are still sinful. And our hearts, Lord, my heart, constantly needs changing and renewing and transforming. So, Lord, by the power of Your Word this morning, we ask for that comfort and that strength, but we also ask, Lord, that You would challenge us. God, that You would convict us of our sin. That You would restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Our salvation that belongs to You and is Yours, and it comes from You alone. God, would you do all of those things this morning through the preaching, through the teaching, through the proclamation of your holy word. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit to you, God, our Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, we wrapped up our sermon series in Matthew last week. We spent 12 weeks in the gospel of Matthew. We began in Matthew chapter 12 and had 12 specific sermons um, in preparing for the next uh, sermon series that we would go through. It weighed heavily on my heart that uh, in our Sunday school material, we're moving more into the New Testament. And so in our sermon series, we are going to go to a very strange world in the past. We're going to be going thousands of years into human history to a place that may not seem very familiar to any of us. There's There's a lot that goes on in this old and ancient world. There's plagues that uh, that torment the land. There is pestilence. There's locusts. There's fires. There's famines. There's uh, a mass killing of multiple babies, thousands and thousands of babies that are killed and cast aside. This world that is so strange and foreign to us. Today might not seem quite so strange and quite so foreign. Um, So, for the foreseeable future, and I hope that you'll hang in there with us, we're going to dive into the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is one of the most key formative books of the Jewish religion. The events that take place in Exodus have a lasting impact even unto what we do and how we worship Today, 
this is one of the most significant events in Israel's history. So there's no better way to start a series looking at the book of Exodus by going to the book of Genesis. So turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 50. The book of Genesis, chapter 50. We can't really understand the significance of everything that happens in the book of Exodus without really getting a a full picture of where we've been and where we are going. The, The impact that Exodus will have, but also the events that lead up to the Exodus. And it's titled Exodus mainly because this is about the exit, the leave of Egypt by the Israelites. So if, if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to be beginning in verse 15. We're going to read this scripture together and then we're going to walk through some things that happen in Genesis leading up to this point. So I'm coming down here because we're going to read, we're going to stand, we're going to do our normal thing. But before we do that, we're going to look at the beginning of Genesis and work our way up to where we are in Genesis 50. Okay, so I know you've got your place. All right, you're there in Genesis 50. I'm going to turn with you. I haven't even marked it in my Bible so that we're experiencing this together. Okay, I don't want you to just sit and watch at home. I want you to take your Bible, hold your thumb in your place at Genesis. Okay, or you know what? I'm saying this, but the vast majority of you guys are probably on your phone or your tablet or something else or your computer. So, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how you open a new tab or whatever you do in your Bible app, but go back to Genesis chapter one. Some of the most powerful words in all of scripture, okay? Whether people want to argue about how young or how old the earth is, whether the theory of evolution is compatible with scripture, all of these different arguments that people like to have about the beginning, here's the most important and significant thing any of us could ever know about the beginning. Let's just read the first four words of Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God. That's all you need to know. That's it. That's the full extent of what is necessary to know. In the beginning, there was God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, before the beginning, God. That is absolutely essential. But then we move forward and God creates. Everything that is created, Genesis 1 and 2, tell us that God created by the power of His voice. He said, let there be, and there was. The book of James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God above. So we know that everything that exists that is good and perfect ties back to the Lord. Because in the beginning there was God. And in the beginning God created. The most incredible part about this story is that if you look with me past Genesis 1 on down to Genesis 2, there's there's a, a story that recounts that God decides, even though He's fully able... We've talked about this before, but maybe you you need a refresher. It always is a blessing to me to be reminded that God spoke everything into existence until we get to Genesis chapter 2, when God forms humanity. You see, God could have just said, let humans be. He could have just said, exist. 
But instead, we get a detailed description about humanity where God plays in the dirt. Our God, the creator of all the universe, the sovereign over all nations, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, plays in the mud. And he forms and shapes humanity. And then, just like the song, Jason, let us in, he kneels down. And instead of just saying, be alive, Scripture tells us that he breathed the breath of life into our nostrils. That His very breath is what fills our lungs. It's a beautiful play on words because that, that wind, that breath, is, is also understood in Hebrew to be spirit. His spirit is alive within us. And so this is the beginning of God's relationship with His creation. And specifically with humanity. But then comes Genesis chapter 3. And the tragedy of Genesis chapter 3 can't be over-exaggerated. There's no hyperbole that sufficiently describes how awful Genesis 3 is. Because when everything was provided for us, when we had our pick of anything else, but there was one limitation, for our own good, a representative of all humanity chose to rebel against God. Not to depend upon God for all that they needed, but to be like God themselves. And in trying to become like God, they become more unlike God than they've ever been. And from that point forward in all of human history, a sinful nature has been upon us. A curse has been upon the earth. And Jake has so eloquently preached about this on our various Wednesday night drive-in services while we were in Romans 8, that this whole earth is cursed because of our sin. The magnitude of Genesis 3 goes far beyond just our relationship with God, which was in tatters because of what we had done. But in addition to that, all of the creation suffered and still suffers because of our sin. And so we have hurricanes and tornadoes and plagues and viruses. And we must work the land. And the land does not easily or willfully produce all that it needs to produce. It is hard labor. There is suffering and trying times throughout human existence because of Genesis 3 and the rebellion against God that takes place. Then it, it progresses. There's children that are had. There's murders that take place. And then it finally gets to a point where in Genesis chapter 6, things are so terrible and so wretched and so awful and humanity has become so depraved that God says, I'm going to wash the world clean and I'm going to start over. I'm going to wash all of this evil away with rains that you've never experienced or seen before. And he calls out one family. He calls out Noah. And Noah begins to build this boat. And Noah begins to build this ark, and he and his sons, Noah's wife, his sons' wives, for hundreds of years, over a hundred years, they build this ark. They build this boat. And Hebrews tells us, as Jake has pointed out before, we've had great conversations about this, Noah preached that entire time. Noah begged people to understand that judgment and wrath was coming, but they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't listen. They, they would not understand that God has a wrath and a punishment that is due us and this earth because of what we have done. And so he preached for a hundred years plus. And 
he took not one extra soul with him on the boat. Folks, we have to remember when we're discouraged, people like Noah, people like Joseph, and remember that there are those who have given their whole lives, decades of their lives, to the service of the Lord. And it feels like He delayed. It feels like you were a failure completely. And yet, all along, God is working, and it's part of God's plan and part of God's purpose. So God washes it all clean. The whole earth is destroyed, and then Noah and his family is preserved. Turn with me as as we continue now to chapter 11. After the flood subsides, Noah comes off. He had so much faith, he even took extra animals on the ark so that he could make sacrifices when he came back off of the ark. And they make those sacrifices. Some weird things happen in a tent. You can look that stuff up, some weird stuff between Noah and one of his sons. There's now a curse on that son that continues out. It's it's a very difficult and very challenging passage to read, but some some fallenness is still very evident. And then, as the Lord has told Noah, as He told Adam and Eve, they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But instead, they all clump together in one big city. And they decide they're going to build this tower. And they think that if they can build a tower tall enough, ignorantly, stupidly even, they think that God resides up in the sky. And if they just build a tower tall enough, they can get to God in the sky. So they begin to build and work together in a sinful and rebellious way, in the same kind of rebellion and treason and treachery that Adam and Eve had when they took the fruit. And so God divides their languages and casts them out and spreads them out all across the earth. And then there's hope once again, because now God is going to enter into a very special relationship, the same kind of way that He entered into a special relationship with Noah, He's going to enter into a special relationship with Abram, who becomes Abraham. God renames him later. We we know him as Abraham. This is the origin, the beginnings of the people of Israel. And for a long time, for thousands of years, the understanding is going to be that to be part of God's special family, you have to be a direct biological descendant of Abraham. But we're going to see that that's not necessarily the case. The people of Israel do not have to biologically be related to Abraham. But what we will learn is if you have the same fate as Abraham, then you are in the same family as Abraham. Abraham believes God. And when God says, pack up everything you own, pack up everything you know, and go wherever I tell you, Abraham says, okay, sounds good. When God says, I'm going to give you a son, and there's no son, and there's no son, and there's no son, eventually, after he's very advanced in years, God miraculously delivers on his promise. And it took, just like Noah, 100 plus years of waiting on God. And yet God shows up. And then God continues this relationship with Isaac and Isaac and Rebecca as you continue on in this story. Keep flipping through your Bible with me. All right, we've now jumped over a lot of chapters there altogether. So Isaac's birth is promised. And then we have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the birth of Isaac in chapter 21. Chapter 22, God again tells Abraham, I want you to take this son, your only son, the son that I gave you and promised to you, and I want you to go and sacrifice him. And Abraham's faith is proven once again. 
And then Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are two twins, and Jacob is a deceiver. That's what the name means. He deceives his brother out of his birthright and out of the blessing from his father, their father, Isaac. Because God has a special purpose and plan for the family of Jacob that is different from the family of Esau. The, the Savior, the one who would crush the serpent's head, would come from Jacob and not Esau. This blessing will continue, so we focus in on Jacob's family. Jacob has to go and live with his, his uncle Laban, or it's just this weird situation. He gets married, he has children by Leah, and Leah's servant, and then Rachel, and Rachel's servant, and, and all these kids, and this, this whole gaggle of children. And in the midst of all of that, we then find our way to chapter 36. So look with me in chapter 36, because now Jacob, as a deceiver, is also a very poor father. Then by the time we get to verse to, to chapter 37, Joseph is clearly the favorite among all the sons. Joseph's given special treatment. And listen, folks, there, there's a lot of people that give Joseph a very hard time because he's going to have some dreams in chapter 37. And he's going to sound very arrogant and prideful, but when you've been given a silver spoon your whole life, when your dad gave you a coat of many colors, when your dad doted on you in ways that he never doted on your brothers, there's going to be some cockiness and arrogance that's there that was raised and nurtured into you. And so Joseph has these dreams that does nothing but make the divide between him and his brothers infinitely worse. These dreams where he, he sees them as bales of hay that bow down to him. That the sun and the moon and the stars are his mother and father and brothers and they bow down to him, Joseph. And you guys may be familiar with how things worked in the Old Testament. The oldest had the birthright. It was a big deal that Jacob stole that from Esau. It's a big deal any time the oldest is not held in the highest regard. And here's Joseph. Probably number 10, number 11, down the line of sons. He's almost at the end of the line. Remember how at the end of the line King David was? They didn't even bring him before Samuel. Samuel had to ask them to go get David because he was the youngest and the runt. It's a huge deal for Joseph to say, Mom, Dad, y'all were bowing down to me as the sun and moon. And brothers, you were the stars and you were bowing down to me also. His brothers absolutely hated him. And so even as the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled, even as this promise is continuing to grow and develop and the descendants are becoming more numerous like the stars and like the dust of the earth, just as God promised to Abraham, there's still strife, there's still enmity, and the brothers go to Dothan. And, you know, I mean, we, we love Dothan, this alright city and everything, but... There's not a good thing that happens in Dothan here in Genesis, okay? In this Dothan, they're slacking off. They're being lazy. They're supposed to be doing a job, and they've abandoned the job. And then Joseph is supposed to go check on them because they ain't been home anywhere near the time frame they're supposed to be home. Has anybody ever stayed, you know, five, ten minutes past curfew? It's one thing five, ten minutes past curfew. We're talking three, four days past curfew, okay? These guys should be back, and they've abandoned their job. Joseph is going to find them. It's not good that Jacob sent Joseph. That's not a wise move as a dad. Look, I'm a dad. I do dumb stuff. Dads make dumb decisions sometimes. There's a lot of dumb decisions that Jacob makes along the way. If you feel like an inept parent, 
Just go to Genesis and read the accounts of some of these parents and make yourself feel just a little bit better because you got people to relate to. So Jacob sends the son that everybody hates wearing the coat that's the special coat that nobody else got. And he says, go find your brothers and you, you tell me where they've been and what they've been doing. So as Joseph approaches, his brothers see him. And he, they devise a plan. He's walking and I, I just imagine he walks with this this air about him. And he walks up to them and he says, hey guys, what, what's going on? Well, while he was walking up, they had thought about killing him. Really wanted to kill him. Killing him was the number one option on the table for a long time. But they finally decided, we're just going to beat him up and throw him in a pit. And they beat him up. They throw him in a pit. The plan is to come back later. But then his brother Judah has this great idea. Hey, let's just sell him and say that he's dead. Then his blood's not on our hands, but he's out of our hair for the rest of our lives. And so they sell him to Ishmaelites. They sell him as a servant. And folks, I don't want you to think about this as indentured servitude. This is not where Joseph has a debt that has to be paid. And so he is going to work for a set amount of time and then he's going to be free. It's not that kind of enslavement. This is Joseph is now the property of these Ishmaelites. He has been sold like you and I would sell a car, like you and I would sell a house. Joseph's brothers have sold him as a piece of property, as something to be owned or possessed. And so Joseph spends years as a slave. He ends up in Potiphar's house, the captain of the guard. He does pretty well. Things go well. God blesses him in the midst of this suffering. Except, he's not the smartest cookie when it comes to the ladies. He gets in a very difficult situation with Potiphar's wife. He finds himself alone with Potiphar's wife and she finds Joseph to be very handsome. And everything that he puts his hand to in Potiphar's house is good, is blessed. She sees God's blessing on him and desires to lay with him. So she tries. She gets his garment, his coat, his outer garment, and gets it off of him. And about that time, he gets and hightails out of the room, out of the house. And so she screams and builds up this false story that he tried to come in and take advantage of her. And I I believe with all my heart that Potiphar was a little skeptical of this story. There's, there's nothing in Scripture to back that up, but Joseph should have been killed right there. The accusation was enough for Joseph's life to be ended, especially by the captain of the guard. Nobody would have questioned otherwise. And yet, Joseph is thrown in the jail. God's favor shines on him in the form of him going to jail. Sometimes God's favor doesn't look exactly like what we think it ought to look like. But he goes to jail and he interprets these dreams for this baker and this cupbearer. And then the cupbearer is taken back to Pharaoh. And after a long spell of time, the cupbearer tells Pharaoh when Pharaoh's plagued with a dream about Joseph and who Joseph is and how Joseph interpreted these dreams. And Joseph goes, he talks to Pharaoh. And after he talks to Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I want you to be second in command. The only person above you will be me. There's going to be seven years of plenty. There's going to be seven years of famine. 
And Joseph, you will oversee the storage of food during the seven years of plenty, and you will distribute the food in the seven years of famine. And so now Joseph is the most powerful man in Egypt aside from Pharaoh. The only person that outranks him is Pharaoh. And the seven years of famine hit, and Joseph's brothers come back needing food. They come back to Joseph. Their paths cross once again. And there's a whole long series of events that we see in chapters 43 and 44 and 45. He tests his brothers and and then the family comes and everybody makes it back to Egypt and they're well taken care of during the family. And Joseph has a sweet reunion with his dad. He, he offers forgiveness to his brothers. Everything seems like it's going to be okay. His dad lives out his years and his dad passes away. Jacob is now dead and they take Jacob and bury him back in the tomb with Isaac and their relatives and their forebears. And now we reach the point of Genesis chapter 50. So, if you manage to stay with me through all of that, God's people are at a crossroad. And here we are. Jacob is now dead. And the promise has been given to all these brothers. What will happen now? So look with me in Genesis chapter 50. We're going to read verses 15 through 26. I would ask, if you're able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word? See, if you fell asleep during that story, now is a chance for you to stand up and wake up wherever you are. All right? Genesis chapter 50, beginning with verse 15. The word of the Lord says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Folks, what we see in this passage is how we end up in the situation in Exodus. God has specifically and intentionally invested in these people for thousands of years. He has called them out as his own special possession, but all of that has always carried on through one primary patriarch. You had Abraham, you had Isaac, and then it focused in on Jacob instead of Esau. So as these generations have passed, there's been one focal point of God's leader among the people, of the person by whom the blessing would continue. Jacob, at the end of Genesis, before we reached that passage, gave blessings to each of his sons, to each of his children. And what Jacob does is divide that blessing out among all the people. And so we have no idea where the focal point is going to be. Genesis ends and people are still in Egypt. Genesis ends and there's no hope of where we're going from here. Who's going to be the focal point? Where will things go? That's why Exodus is set up so beautifully for God to eventually show us Moses, the next person by whom he will deliver his people, by whom he will carry out the promise of these blessings. But what we see in Genesis up to and including Genesis chapter 50 is suffering and hardship and pain. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine that are so severe it makes them forget the seven years of plenty. We see people like Noah preaching and teaching and building an ark and calling people to repentance for over a hundred years with no one coming to repentance. We see people like Abraham trusting in God for a hundred years before he's given the promised son and then trusting God even when God says go sacrifice that son. We see people like Joseph who maybe he was a little bit cocky, maybe he was a little bit arrogant, but He doesn't have crimes or offenses that merit being sold into slavery, being falsely accused, and being thrown into jail. Folks, there's times in our life where the seven years of famine seem like 700 years of famine. Where we have no idea what God is up to or what God is doing. Where we're trying to be faithful, where we're trying to trust, where we're trying to believe. But just imagine Joseph. If this has been a hard year for you in 2020 so far, imagine the solidarity you have in Joseph. Joseph was a slave. This this was almost two decades of Joseph's life. Joseph was a young teenager probably when these things happened. And then we're told that he was 30 years old when he enters into the house of Pharaoh and begins to rule as the second in command. We're not talking about a short season. We're talking about years and years of his life. We're talking about Joseph missing his high school graduation because he's a slave. We're talking about Joseph missing out on all the things that everybody else got to enjoy because he was a slave. We're talking about him taking the silver spoon out of his mouth and being thrown to the pigs. Joseph experienced hardship. And then one of the most powerful phrases in all of Scripture shows up here in chapter 50. Joseph's prophecy, his dreams come true. The the bales of hay that bow down to him. Look at what his brothers say in verse 18. 
brothers, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. The dream that God gave Joseph probably 20 years before this moment coming to fruition where his brothers bow down before him and say, we are your servants. They're scared. They're afraid that now that their dad is dead, that that was the only thing holding Joseph back from unleashing his wrath upon them. But this causes Joseph to weep that his brothers still think so little of him. And then he speaks some of the most powerful words in Scripture. Verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me. Comma, huge conjunctive. But God meant it for good. Guys, this ties in exactly to what Jake said from Romans 8. God is at work. Romans 8, 28. God is at work in all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. What is meant for evil, the curse of this world, the hardship, the trial, the pain, the plague, might be meant for evil, might be originated in our rebellion and our treason and our sin. It might be initially initiated in evil, but God will use it for good. You know how I know. Because this isn't the only place that but God shows up. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. One of the most powerful ten verses in all of Scripture to summarize the Gospel. Who we are, where we were, and what happened. We were in the midst of a plague. We were already dead because of the plague. We were already gone and hopeless. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were dead. There was no hope. The crash cart had come in. They had shocked us. Over and over again. They had waited on the family and the family didn't call it. They said, keep working, keep working. They kept pressing and kept pressing and ribs were cracking and there was no heartbeat until finally they said, give it up. We were dead in the tomb until they, there was a stench. And they said, Jesus, don't open that stone. Don't roll away the stone from the tomb. Lazarus stinks by now. He's dead. There is no hope. Joseph is a slave. Joseph's in prison. There's no way for him to get out. There is no hope but God. We were dead. We were dead in our sins. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in these things in which we once walked. We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. Following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom these sons we all once lived. We all once lived and lived in the passions of our flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. All of humanity, aside from Jesus, is humanity children of wrath. Because of our rebellion, because there is no hope, we are a people of 
God's wrath. But see, all of that is in the past tense. All of that is, you once walked in those things. You once were a part of that humanity that stands condemned already. You once were a part of that wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead, even when the situation was hopeless, even when almost 30 million Americans are without jobs, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together. Those who trust in Christ made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up. Didn't just save us, but raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, his grace and the riches of his grace cannot be measured. They are unfathomable. They are so deep that there's no way to tell where they end. They're so wide we can't see past the horizon. The riches of God's grace are immeasurable and they are to be shown to those who believe in the coming age. There is a time when we will experience those riches, the riches of His grace. We will be raised up with Him and seated with Him. So that He might show those immeasurable immeasurable riches. The riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. This is the gospel. These two passages are tied together inextricably. They're inseparable. The pain and the suffering and the sorrow that Joseph experienced. The earthly picture of him experiencing the measurable riches of Pharaoh. Being taken from literally pauper to prince being literally taken from hopeless to second in command over all of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, to be the one who decided who got food and who did not. He is the one who helped Egypt become the power that they were, but he was a prisoner, he was a slave, he was a nobody, he was dead. But God made him alive. Folks, this is the backdrop. Of Exodus. But it's also the backdrop of our lives. It's also the backdrop of our experience. Especially those of us who have trusted in Jesus. Because there was a time when we were enslaved. There was a time when we were in the prison. There was a time when we were dead. But in the same way that God breathed life into Adam and Eve formed them and shaped them and breathed His very breath while we were dead and lifeless. By the grace of God and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He leaned down and He breathed the breath of eternal life 
into each one of us. We were dead and there was no hope. Joseph was a prisoner and there was no hope. His brothers meant all of this for evil, but God had other plans. This is how Egypt ends up owning and enslaving Israel. But for right now, this is how God delivers Israel and saves their very existence and saves the whole world through Joseph. All the world came to Egypt for food. This is a picture of Christ. And even though everybody's losing jobs, even though there's tornadoes tearing through our county in the midst of a pandemic, while there's fires in Australia, while there's locusts in Africa, while all sorts of craziness and hell on earth is being unleashed in all various forms, we can trust that even though it seems hopeless, even though all of this seems like it's meant for evil, God is at work for good. And we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if we trust in Jesus, There was a time when we were dead, and now we are alive. We can experience new life in Him. So folks, I know that what's really hard about some of this quarantine is what do we do? What do I do? He's created me for good works. He's prepared them beforehand. But I want to remind you to be, to trust. To rest in God's promise and know that all of this is happening, but God is at work. Trust that He is using everything that is happening for His good, for His glory, and for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So that only leaves one question. It's been a long sermon, I know. I would say I'm sorry, but I'm not. There's one question. Are you still dead? Are you still hopeless? Have you been raised up and seated with Jesus in the heavenly places? Are you a part of the people who will experience the immeasurable riches of of God's grace through Christ Jesus? Because if you're not, you've got to change that today. Trust that there is hope to be found in Christ In Christ alone. That even if life seems a lot like Joseph for you right now, God's at work. Even if you think that your boss or your company or anything is out for your evil, God can take that and turn it and use it for good. Maybe your situation is that God has blessed you and shown you favor by letting you be thrown in jail or something along those lines. Maybe God's favor is that your house was blown away, but your life was spared. Remember, it was mercy that Joseph was thrown in the jail and not beheaded. God's favor shows up in all kinds of ways and forms. And we have a tendency to miss it. I encourage you, don't miss it. And don't be counted among those who reject the salvation that is available through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank You for that incredible 
and powerful conjunction. Things were headed one way, but God, You turned things around. Lord, we look forward to, we yearn for, we long for the day when we can see how You've turned this around. The pandemic was closing in on us. Our finances were getting tighter and tighter. The money was dwindling away. There was no hope. But God showed up. Lord, we can't wait to tell those testimonies. To tell those stories of how good and how faithful and how worthy You are. Help us to see You at work even now. And Lord, for anyone who is watching or listening, by some miracle who's still tuned in, maybe they don't know You. Lord, grab a hold of their heart right now that they might trust in You. And know that even in the midst of evil, You are at work for good. We love You, Father. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.